Welcome to Life Undissertated with the Millennial Black Professor. I'm your host, Dr. Latasha N. Ely Kelly, yours truly for making it make sense by making it plain. Please be advised, content warnings for this episode are listed in the show notes. Hey everyone, last episode we began talking about body politics, a concept rooted in feminist work that studied body language and how it manifests within the power dynamics of certain relationships. It was initially used to address how men express their power over women's bodies and evolved to incorporate institutionalized power over women's bodies. For example, reproductive rights. Eventually, body politics came to encompass the control those in power aim to exert over our bodies and the troubling that occurs at the individual and societal levels when that power and control is challenged, resisted, and undermined. So, when we apply this concept of body politics to Black bodies, context is key. Let's take it back. The application of power and dominance over and the control and ownership of black bodies in America can be traced back to slavery and in part began when white slave traders and owners realized that hair was a major key amongst the various African tribes from which black bodies were being stolen. White slave traders knew African men and women's hair was inextricably linked to identity, with hair used as a means of communication, an indicator of social status, and form of identification. Various styles, lengths, and textures belonged to particular tribes or were associated with specific geographic locations. The unifying thread was hair's social and cultural significance, something that persists today in the Black community. Knowing this, that hair was something that made the African peoples unique, identified them with particular values, beliefs, rites of passage, and other practices, and would serve as an empowering, connective tie to home and family, Slave traders attempted to dehumanize enslaved Africans by shaving their heads as they boarded ships, labeling their hair as unflattering, and forcing African women to cover it to reinforce a narrative of inherent inferiority. As a quick side note, there are so many examples of our ancestors finding ways to survive and thrive in spite of their enslavement and the horrendous treatment they were subjected to, and this is no exception. African women used colorful, beautifully decorated wraps and other fabric to cover their hair in response to these laws, which is a cultural norm that persists within our community. It's also yet another site of cultural appropriation by non-Black women who have tried to claim and present these head coverings as their own creations and monetize them at exorbitant prices. But I digress. (laughs) That's a topic for another day. So, Because on a basic level, it's much easier to mistreat someone when you don't know them or you see and believe them to be less human than yourself or not human at all, which is also known as othering, white men and women intentionally framed enslaved blacks as subhuman to justify abuse and alleviate any discomfort they may have felt over their heinous acts, including white men raping enslaved women, resulting in children with features most often acknowledged as Eurocentric such as straight hair and light skin. The commonly preferential treatment of these children, in addition to persistent societal affirmation of their physical traits, led to hierarchies that manifest as inter- 
and intra-racial colorism and hair discrimination to this day. These manifestations contribute to institutional racism that impacts various aspects of our lives, including career opportunities and employment environments. Let's keep it 100. Unwanted hair touching, masked as curiosity or adoration or anything other than the offensive behavior it is, is a microaggression entrenched in racism, and thus it is a racist act. It is an act rooted in one's mere existence and privilege as a white individual, leading to an internalized belief that black bodies belong to them and exist at their mercy, and an understanding that, however that white person chooses to interact with or impose themselves upon black bodies, there will be no penalty. Consider Sarki Bartman, also known as Sarah Bartman. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with her story, but for those who aren't, Sarah Bartman was an African woman who was exploited for European entertainment. She was also referred to as the Hot and Tot Venus and was placed on display in a zoo-like show. Patrons of the show paid to observe her physical features and especially touch her buttocks. Historical research shows that she was framed as basically the opposite of a classic goddess, portrayed as an animal, housed with animals, and exhibited wearing nude colored clothing. She also had tribal face paint and exotic headdresses to further demonstrate her quote-unquote wildness and show her in juxtaposition to Victorian concepts of beauty. Upon her death, her body was dissected and her organs, specifically her vagina and brain, placed on display until 2002 when, after much public outcry, she was returned home to South Africa for a proper burial. Many of the women I've spoken with identify with Sarah Bartman. They bemoan the fact that, when they are touched without consent, when their features are called out and made a big deal of by white people, they feel on display, violated, objectified, and dehumanized. All because a white person decided satisfying their curiosity was worth more than a black person's entire being, existence, and right to safety. When this happens, we're well within our rights to feel how we feel. Just as the importance of consent for other forms of touching is preached, consent to touch any part of someone else's body is imperative. Black people must know that they are right to call out this behavior and report it. But let's be real. The likelihood of feeling safe and secure enough to say something on one's job or in certain social settings is often slim, whether it be due to fear of retaliation, general embarrassment, or trepidation about being labeled threatening, intimidating, or angry and how those labels might impact your current work environment, professional prospects, or your reputation. And that's okay. As a victim of assault, the onus isn't on you to call it out. However, if you do, as much as possible, try to do so confidently, knowing that what you've experienced is not insignificant, you're not alone, you're not being overly sensitive, and even if you are being so-called aggressive, it's warranted. To any non-Black listeners, let me just say this. If and when a Black person is reporting an incident to you, venting about an incident, or otherwise sharing an instance of hair-related assault, please refrain from trying to make a connection by telling them about a time when you had such a bad hair day, or your sister pulled your hair and it hurt really bad, or any other number of stories meant to make you feel more comfortable, temper your growing awareness of privilege, and minimize the Black person's lived experience. In most cases, Doing this will only serve to alienate as you minimize their experience, not foster connection. As you may have heard, we're not trying to make the oppression Olympics a thing. 
And when you acknowledge and accept the historical context that underpins your Black counterpart's experience, your experiences don't rise to the level of assault or trauma because they're not rooted in the dominant power's need and desire to maintain the status quo. You have never had to try daily to squish yourself down into a form that maintains your marginalization and simultaneously reifies the dominant power. Also, consider that throughout the pandemic, many Black people, Black women in particular, have felt inspired to experiment with their natural hair, some for the first time, as they no longer had to go into the office or out of the house as much. Some had to shift to doing their own hair for financial reasons or because salons weren't open with as much availability, which may lead to the presence of more natural styles visible in the office or on your Zoom or Teams meetings. Refrain from making a big production of it every time you see it, because Black women's hair is naturally versatile, and many take pride in that in experimenting with different options. Some prefer certain styles because they're more manageable, some because they're particular to their taste and fashion. Switching up styles regularly, trying new things, is another form of cultural resistance, fighting the power, so to speak. You may remember I mentioned othering earlier. Wearing our hair in a variety of ways is a self-empowering way to resist attempts to objectify us and dehumanize us. However, when our styles are interpreted or labeled as threatening, unattractive, unfeminine, or in other negative ways by non-Black individuals, or when we're told we're unrecognizable or interrogated about our hair, our existence and designation as other is reinforced. The versatility of our hair can mean a change in style monthly, weekly, or even daily. A little of the joy can be sucked right out of it when we are bombarded with over-the-top acts of failure to be recognized because our hair is so different, or we get a thousand questions about the cost, how long it took, and whether it's our real hair. It's exhausting. Enter the Crown Act, developed by the Crown Coalition in conjunction with Dove, the National Urban League, Color of Change, and Western Center on Law and Poverty, and introduced to Congress in 2019. According to thecrownact.com, CROWN is an acronym for creating a respectful and open world for natural hair. The law is currently passed in 14 states and the House of Representatives, awaiting Senate approval. If approved, Crown establishes legal standing against hair discrimination on a national level and presents language addressing gaps in the Civil Rights Act. The Supreme Court previously dismissed or ruled against cases of hair discrimination, arguing that the Civil Rights Act defines race as unchangeable aspects of a person's being. This definition doesn't account for the innumerable hairstyles and textures innate to Black culture and most associated with the Black community, hence why the Crown Act is so necessary. Between promotion of crown, the buzz phrase representation matters, increased work from home due to COVID-19, emboldening or requiring Black people to experiment with their hair, and other cultural factors, the prevalence and visibility of Black men and women proudly wearing their natural hair in a variety of settings is steadily on the rise. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott hit us with a major flex when he was sworn into office wearing an afro with a very tight lineup. WFAA News 8 anchor Tashara Parker proudly wears her natural hair on air, regularly challenging the status quo and despite community complaints and accusations of unprofessionalism. She has since also become a vocal advocate and spokesperson for the Crown Act. A variety of hair looks, including beautiful natural styles, are increasingly present in commercials and TV shows, 
especially those written and produced by Black people with a Black audience in mind, such as the ornate protective style seen in Issa Rae's Insecure. More and more celebrities, well-known faces, and everyday citizens are joining the movement, such as everyone's favorite vegan auntie, Tabitha Brown, who recently shared Dove's new short film, As Early As Five, which highlights the lasting impacts of just how soon in our lives hair discrimination begins rearing its ugly head and its lasting effects. Viola Davis also shared the video, and both she and Tabitha encouraged followers to sign a petition in support of passing the Crown Act nationally. I also saw a huge amount of support for CBS 46 reporter Barmel Lyons, known for her reporting in Atlanta and as host of the Vision and Vibes podcast, and who posted a viral TikTok joyously announcing that she was rocking her natural hair on TV for the first time and notifying viewers that she was pulling up on them and they should put some respect on her curls because her crown is here to stay. This is not the first time we've seen a surge and continuum of Black self-love actualized. In the 60s and 70s, we saw movements, including the Black Power Movement, which, among other forms of resistance, encouraged embracing Blackness and all that comes with it as beautiful. This meant natural hair was out in all its glory. Afros big and small were proudly worn by many as symbols of racial pride. Eventually, the period died down as a cohesive movement, and as Blacks strive for success, accomplishment, and attainment, many had to revert back to complying with accepted beauty and professional standards in order to get ahead, which meant minimizing those froes, quieting outspoken voices, and even dressing demurely, basically muting themselves in order to be accepted. Since the late 90s and early 2000s, there's been a gradual shift back to embracing natural hair that has picked up steam ever since. I recently saw a tweet that said, I don't think there's ever been an older gen that loved a younger gen more than millennials love Gen Z. It really don't matter if they love us back. We just over here with go best friend energy. <laughs> younger millennials and Gen Z have prioritized embracing one's true self, self-love, self-acceptance, and resisting behavioral impositions and value systems that negate well-being and acceptance. And I, for one, am here for it. Yet, despite some progress, and depending on how you define or what you consider progress, colorism and texturism is still prevalent in these streets. Friends and TV production, telecommunications, cybersecurity, education, and other fields frequently tell me stories about negative and bizarre reactions to their hair in the workplace, within their relationships, and in random exchanges with strangers. We see these offenses on a grander scale with prohibitive policies such as the International Swimming Federation's ban at the Tokyo Olympics held in 2021 on swimming caps specifically made to cover Black women's hair. I completed my doctoral research on Black women's experiences of skin hue and hair politics between 2012 and 2014, and it can be disheartening to know that what many of the young women I spoke to experienced as early as four and five years old is alive and well today and continues to have lasting, harmful impacts. I heard the stories of so many Black women attending predominantly white colleges, stories that coincide with findings of the 2021 Dove Crown Research Study for Girls. 1,000 girls, 500 Black, 500 White, ages 5 to 18, were surveyed and researchers found that 86% of Black teens who experience discrimination say they have experienced it based on their hair by the age of 12 that 100% of Black elementary school girls in majority white schools who report experiencing hair discrimination say they experience it by the age of 10. 
And that trauma from these experiences causes teenage black girls to miss up to a week of school per year due to hair dissatisfaction. Because while 90% of black girls believe their hair is beautiful, the microaggressions and discrimination they endure has an impact on their self-esteem and body image, leading to 81% of black girls in majority white schools indicating they sometimes wish their hair was straight. The survey, a follow-up to Dove's 2019 Crown Research Study, also confirmed the generational impact of hair discrimination, as the 2019 study revealed that Black women are 1.5 times more likely to be sent home from the workplace because of their hair, and 80% more likely than white women to agree that they have to change their hair from its natural state to fit in at the office. And in 2021, 47% of Black mothers similarly reported having experienced discrimination related to their hair. And yet, we persist. We persist in taking up room in disrupting spaces by boldly wearing our hair as we please in the office, boardroom, classroom, newsroom, showroom, lab, at social events, both formal and informal, and everything in between, wherever there's work to be done and fun to be had. To be present as our fully authentic selves revokes the power of those who strive to uphold ideology that frames Black bodies as subpar and abnormal. The implication being that white bodies are the opposite, the standard. Proudly standing firm in our identity and cultural aesthetic demonstrates what it can look like to absolve our community of respectability politics and still flourish, thrive, and be successful. All the while reminding those who aim to diminish that power to have several seats and admire, from afar, our crowns. Happy Black History Month. If you enjoyed today's episode and want more, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe. Whatever you do on the platform you're using to make sure our voices stay on their necks and continue to be heard for the culture. You can also check out everything the MVP is up to on IG at the Millennial Black Professor and at themillennialblackprofessor.com. Till next time.